0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins." Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the Lord of the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning again. And I'm thankful to be with you all again and to study the scriptures once more. Uh, If you're in person, Facebook Live, YouTube, thanks to all of you for joining us with worship. Uh, If you're new to North Cross, virtually or physically, uh, we'd love to get to know you. Uh, That's part of what we think one of our um, values is, is to actually just get to know people and to be known. And so if you could stick around afterwards, if you're in person, we'd love to chat. Um, If you're virtual, maybe you can send an email, as Mark mentioned, sit at northcrosschurch.com or info at northcrosschurch.com. To those here, again, uh, who are not so new, we're really glad to be with you. I'm personally glad to be with you um, as part of this family, the church. Well, historically and globally, the Christian church has marked this 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday with a season called Lent. And for more information or resources to help practice Lent, I suggest that you look at the Lent post on the North Cross Facebook group or Instagram account and or listen to the introduction I gave last week. Um, I think it should be on the podcast on, online, uh, right before last week's sermon I gave it. So, but kind of transitioning and keeping with Lent and, and its timing between these two sermon series that we've been working at, looking at 1 Samuel in the fall and now we're going to look at 2 Samuel in the spring. Uh, I hope to lead us into some self-examination of our own hearts using the words of David. So we're spending the next several Sunday mornings, we started last week, in the Psalms and the topic of prayer and emotions. How do these two things relate? The Psalms are deeply emotional prayers that offer us a way to process our lives. And we get to honestly express our feelings about where we are before God and to God but the Psalms also form our prayers. They shape our prayers. They teach us how to connect all of our life experiences to God. So last week, we discussed Psalm 10 and that feeling of anger. This morning, we're going to explore how to process and pray through another negative emotion. The emotion of shame. Shame. And we're we'll look at Psalm 25 to do this. But before we look at connecting our shameful moments to God... In prayer, uh, would you pray with me, and let's take some time together to pray for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Would you pray with me, Father? um, I confess it's another dreary day um, in a long, long stretch in a pandemic, um, Lord, and we're longing for spring. um, We're longing for. Easter Sunday and in this middle period, Lord, we need you to come and meet us in these words. Lord, would you give us an honesty and openness to your word? Uh, But Jesus, we need you to meet us where we are. Uh, Would you meet us in our hiding? Would you chase us down in our running? Uh, Would you greet us in the ways that we come towards you? Would you embrace us in our need? And Father, there are as many different spaces that we are in spiritually and emotionally as we are physically this morning, if not more. And I pray that you would be that God who is so personal and so big that he can meet us and meet our hearts in ways that we don't even know. And I pray, use your words this morning to do that. Use me, use my lips. Uh, they're sinful would you even purify them by your word and by your spirit this morning? Lord, we ask to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. And in your name, Jesus, we do pray. This time, amen. Well, it all started with a prank phone call. I was in the sixth grade, and my friend James had given my home phone number, remember when those happened, to a few girls in class and they decided to repeatedly call me one Saturday afternoon and evening. I'm not exactly sure why they called me, and I'm actually not even sure why I kept picking up the phone, but the lead phone pranker, a girl named Suzanne, uh, called me back a few days later, and I'm not sure why, whether it was curiosity or maybe remorse, but Suzanne called me and we actually just kind of began to talk. Soon we began talking regularly on the phone, almost every night. And eventually, I'm not sure how, but we suddenly became an item. We were a girlfriend and a boyfriend. She was my first girlfriend. Even though we had never actually met in person, and really ever seen each other to go on a date. Several weeks later, after we'd already kind of been talking for a long time, and kind of established the relationship, or defined it, we finally decided that we should meet face to face. I can still remember that Saturday morning. It was sunny, and I picked out my favorite Nike hoodie sweatshirt two-toned, but I was running late, shocking I know to many of you, Uh, so in order to be on time, I decided to skip the morning shower and wear a hat, a decision that would haunt me for a long time, too long of a time afterwards. Anyway, I went over to my friend James's house, and from there we met Suzanne and a few of her friends, and I could tell from the beginning that she just wasn't that into me. Looking back on that moment, I can guess that maybe our phone relationship was some sort of novelty that Suzanne was getting tired of or bored of, but at the same time, I was sure that Suzanne didn't like the look of me, that there was something she saw about me that she didn't like, that didn't feel good enough to date. And so not surprisingly, we broke up a few days later. Yes, she dumped me and I felt like I was just going to shrivel up and die. (laughs) Simply, I felt put to shame. You see, when Suzanne looked at me, when she looked over me, and dismissed me, then dumped me, all of my sixth grade insecurities were suddenly confirmed. About how I looked, and about who I really was in this world, I felt completely exposed. I didn't feel like I was enough. I felt unworthy, even disgusting at a core self level. The Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson defines shame as the painfully acute awareness, the painfully acute awareness that something is wrong with me, the felt sensation of deep inadequacy. We feel separated, not only from others, but disconnected within ourselves. That definition given, I think we all know shame when we feel it, right? Um, And perhaps me as a sixth grader with hat hair getting dumped at first sight is a good image for what shame looks like, too. But our passage today, Psalm 25, offers a thoughtful diagnosis and a startling remedy for our shame. So first, the diagnosis. According to Psalm 25, shame comes... Shame comes from mistaking who I am for what I do and for what other people think of me. Shame comes from mistaking who I am for what I do and for what other people think of me. And then the remedy. Therefore, God meets us in our shame and he redefines who I am. So God meets us in our shame and redefines who I am by making known what God does. And what God thinks of me. So in Psalm 25, which is an acrostic, which is a fancy way of saying it's kind of each letter of the alphabet in order at the beginning of each verse, uh, I counted 13 petitions, 13 pleas to the Lord, 13 times where David the psalmist asked the Lord for something. And the themes of these petitions can kind of be grouped into four topics roughly. Three sources of shame. Vocation. Guilt. And enemies. And one solution to shame: God's friendship. That's how we're going to address Psalm twenty-five. It's on your outline and your sermon bulletin, maybe projected behind me. And we'll do it in order. First, verses four through five and eight through ten describe this first source of shame: vocation. What we will do, and how good things can often have a certain tyranny over us. Second, verses 6, 7, and 11, and then 16 through 18, describe the second source of shame, guilt. What we did do, and how these bad things have a certain kind of hold over us. And then third, verses 19 through 20, describe the third source of shame. Other people's opinions. What other people think, or how our enemies can have a certain kind of hold over us. And then fourth and finally, verses 12 through 15, and then verses 21 through 22 describe the solution to shame, God's friendship. That is, how what did God do, and what God will do, and what God thinks of us can have a certain kind of freedom for us. Let's begin as close to the start of Psalm 25 as we can get, and we'll address the first and perhaps most surprising source of our shame, the future good things we will do, vocation. So let's look together at verses, uh, starting verse one through three, and there you see kind of a four theme overture. Like you see all the things I just laid out in that outline put before you as sort of an introduction or overture for a musical. All of them are kind of laid out in this brief form. But then you kind of the passage takes a turn in verses four and five, and again in verses eight through ten, where Dave, David, the psalmist, asked the Lord God to know His God's ways. He asks for his ways or paths. David wants guidance, right? He wants to know what to do, what he will do. He's asking for what we might call vocation, vocational discernment. But David's petitions for future guidance have this kind of peculiar, particular flavor to them, right? Like, he wants to know God's truth, verse 5. What is right, verse 9. And God's steadfast love and faithfulness, verse 10. To paraphrase one commentator, the psalmist's prayers are meant to shape our future desires away from asking God to read God's mind, to know exactly what's next for me. So he to push pushes away from asking to read God's mind and to know exactly what's next for, next for me. Instead, David is asking not to read God's mind. The psalmist David is asking for God's mind. David wants God's wisdom. He wants God's truth. He wants God's peace. He wants God's character. Like all of us, of course, David is a human being and he wants to know what's coming. He wants to know what's around the next next corner, the work, the place, the people, the problems, the fun. But David would prefer, and he's teaching us to actually ask for the ability to handle whatever's next. With the most wisdom and truth, with the best peace and character. That is God's peace and God's character. In short, verses 4 through 5 and 8 through 10 challenge us about what we want. They challenge us, or maybe kind of challenge us about what we just think we want. And here's the deal so many of us feel so oppressed, so ashamed by the pressure. Of the many, many good things we ought to be doing. That we want to do. Who we are quickly gets wrapped up in what we will do. We mistake our identities for our vocations. Who we are for what we will do. We hear the footsteps of that future somebody. That future me, right? I don't want to miss out on what will happen. And so, therefore, I fill my schedule, just in case. You know. Or um, we refuse to stop and rest. You know, I just can't fall behind in this life. I can't be, my family cannot be just average. We, we don't want to be passed by. We don't want to be un-amazing. <laughs> Mark Manson, the author, not the psycho killer, <laughs> Uh, Mark Manson calls this insecure, desperate feeling of shame the tyranny of exceptionalism. The tyranny of exceptionalism. The tyranny of exceptionalism comes from the fact, and let's just be really honest, that most of us are actually pretty average or below average at just about everything. Okay, statistically that just bears out, right? Except for one or two things that we're we're above average, or maybe even way above average. Why? Because hours upon hours, we have done that one thing. It's a job, it's studying, it's a sport, it's a hobby. We're good at that because we put lots of hours into it. But due to the internet and what gets clicks on the internet and our assumptions about people that we see around town but don't really know or see around campus but don't really know, uh, we have changed our point of reference. Our point of reference is not each other as we actually are. Our point of comparison is the exceptional. The 99.999th percentile. The truly extraordinary. The best of the best. The worst of the worst. The greatest physical feats. The funniest jokes. The most upsetting news. The scariest threats. Non stop. We know our insides, but we judge our insides by celebrities' outsides, right? Or even just the lives around us that seem to be working the best, those particular parts of them. And we know our secret faults and that we're quite average most of the time, but a simple Google search shows us thousands of people without those same problems. And so, online or in social situations where our status is on the line, we feel the need to be more extreme, more radical, more self-assured to get noticed, or even just to matter, constantly needing to grow and to justify and to prove ourselves. But listen to what God's wisdom, what God's truth, his gospel tells us. Anthony Bradley does this in a beautiful way, and I'm just going to quote him here. If you're united to Jesus Christ by faith, you're beyond adequate. (laughs) You cannot be more successful, more awesome, more amazing than you already are right now today. It's impossible for you to be more successful, accomplished, strong, and equipped by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit than you are right now by your union in Christ it's impossibly better than that. Don't worry. Today, you are free to make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to work with your hands, to mind your own business, and to love yourself, or to lose yourself in loving God and loving neighbor because you are beyond enough. You can let that, all that anxiety and all that perfectionism go because it was nailed to the cross of Christ permanently, and it's over. Yes, please, you can do good, but the good you do does not have to be amazing. If what you will do is a have to have, you will feel shame about who you are right now. In addition to the shame you feel about the good, and I feel about the good we will do, vocation, Psalm 25 picks up on a second source of shame. The shame, I'm just going to, all right, see if that helps. Okay. Psalm 25 picks up on a second source of shame, the shame over what we did do, guilt. So this is our point two of our outline. What we did do our guilt, the shame there. Verses six through seven and then 11 and then verses 16 through 18, David is identifying another location of personal shame. Here's how he puts it. The sins of my youth or my transgressions, verse seven. My guilt, verse 11. My affliction and my trouble and all my sins, verse 18. But notice the psalmist is not just kind of fingering and guilt, it's a sort of sick pleasure from the pain. No, David is actually showing us how to plead our guilt to God. It's beautiful. David is giving us the words for how to ask for God's pardon, that he would remember it not, that he would pardon, that is, lift up and carry away my guilt, verse 11. And also verse 7. The very acts of God's forgiveness, the very acts of forgiveness God does for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was lifted up on a cross, and there he bore the bone-crushing burden of our sins, the guilt, the affliction, the trouble, all of it, there and done. But I don't have to theologically prove the existence of guilt. I don't. Here's why. Our shame does that for us. Our shame does that for us. You see, not only does shame explain the existence of guilt... A lot of our shame explains the need for guilt. Our shame explains the need for guilt. According to shame expert and best-selling author Brene Brown, we all live with shame, this kind of vague unease, a sense that something's wrong with me. But here's what guilt does. Guilt allows us to say, I did something bad there. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Would you forgive me? And then there's kind of this possibility of moving on with our life and our relationships. But without guilt, shame takes over and forces us to say, not I did something bad, guilt, but I am bad, shame. And so when we apologize, we often say not so many words, I'm sorry, I'm a mistake. And there's no human being that can do anything with that. (laughs) Right? No human being can forgive anyone else's existence. And so there's no moving on relationally. You see, someone else can forgive a guilty action against her, but that same person can't forgive my existential shame. If that makes sense. And Brene Brown points to how the research plays this out. Right? The research shows that there's a high correlation between shame and addiction and depression, and violence, and aggression, and bullying, and suicide, and disordered eating. And this is against the evidence for what guilt actually does. Feeling guilty actually leads to less addiction, less depression, less aggression, less disordered eating, less suicide. Simply put, guilt is not the primary problem, shame is. But this is all very countercultural. For years, hundreds of years, in North America and Europe, culturally, we have been saying guilt is the problem, right? And so shame has spiked, often taking the forms of depression and anxiety. I love the way that like writer Walker Percy was so far ahead of his time. He wrote a book decades ago called Love in the Ruins. In Love in the Ruins, there's this book that has this great scene where the main character, whose name is Thomas More, tries to explain his anxious and depressed condition to a psychiatrist named Max Gottlieb. Gottlieb tries to understand Moore's anxiety by asking how Moore feels about the many simultaneous extramarital affairs he's having. And after Moore acknowledges that his affairs are are sinful, but don't feel guilty, this is what Gottlieb says. I understand. Then since it is sinful, guilt feelings follow, even though it's a pleasure. And then Moore responds, no, they, the guilt feelings, don't follow. And Gottlieb says, then what worries you if you don't feel guilty? And Moore says, that's what worries me. Not feeling guilty. Not feeling guilty worries me. You see, the character Thomas Moore is epitomizing the modern sensibility that doesn't allow for sin and guilt. More has a shame-based worry, a spreading shame that draws its power from not feeling guilty by not being able to pinpoint what it is that we feel guilty about. Likewise, we often feel bad about who we are, shame, instead of feeling bad about what we did, guilt. So our past behavior, what we did, becomes a map onto our present identity, who we are. And so Jesus' work of pardon, the cross's forgiveness never quite feels like it's enough when we're living in that space. But Psalm 25 not only points to what we will do, vocation, what we did do, guilt, as sources of shame. Psalm 25 also points to the way that other people's negative opinions about me cause me shame. Point three of our outline this morning. Verses 19 to 20, continue a plea first made in verses two and three at the very beginning of the psalm. This is how a few phrases from verses 19: 20, "Let not my enemies exult or gloat over me. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O, guard my soul and deliver me. let me, be not, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you." And most commentators here agree that these enemies are more political and social than military, right? That they're treacherous, verse 3, and they even have a violent hatred, verse 19, but it's probably more harshness and severity of the hatred than actual physical threat. And further, this biblical concept of enemy that can feel hard to understand in 21st century Lake Norman in North Carolina, this, this idea is actually very broad. It includes anyone who treats you unjustly. Anyone who makes a judgment or forms an opinion about you that feels unfair or unjust, even just to you. Whether it's Davidson College, and social media feed, in the neighborhood or at work, or with extended family getting together, we can constantly feel, right? We can constantly feel the weight of other people's opinions about us. Opinions which are often unfair. <laughs> Everybody's always weighing in on everybody else's business, right? We, they all know what you did and what they, they know what you didn't do. And there's good and bad reputations that follow us around, that precede us as we enter into a room or a space. And we can get stained by a habit. We can be frozen by a moment in time that happened to us even a long time ago. It could be a nick. It could be just an expectation that we will act in a certain way, right? It could be that we're, people expect us to be lazy and irresponsible or crazy or fun or hidden in plain sight and never speaking and never showing up. Shame comes from that moment when we are called out as different or someone just makes you feel different, lonely, lost, even gross. And so we get embarrassed about who we are. At New Mexico State University, where I was a pastor for four years, there was a girl who transferred in, and in the midst of transferring in, had a tough time adjusting to the culture of the school. And those first few weeks were hard on her and hard for her. Feeling lonely and desperate to find friends, uh, this girl, Ellen, went to several parties and kind of drank her way um, through them. She drank too much, she drank so much that she made a scene, several scenes, and these were such big scenes that she made a name for herself. She became Drunk Ellen. That's how everyone knew her, and that's actually even how she was introduced to me at a ministry event. And so Ellen came to a few events we held, and eventually it came out that Ellen was failing math, and so another student a Christian computer scientist named Ethan, who volunteered to help Ellen out with her math. And he did. And it was amazing to watch the transformation that happened. Ethan didn't know anything about quote-unquote drunk Ellen and her reputation. Everyone seemed to kind of wrongly think she was dumb because of that nickname. But Ethan treated her so politely and with such dignity and week in and week out, he just sat with her and he helped her, and she began to change. It was hard to see at first, a subtle optimism, a slight smile, a few right answers, but eventually Ethan's kindness and his friendship, through those things, Ellen began to see herself differently. She was moving from drunk Ellen back to just Ellen, created with dignity Ellen, Ellen with beauty and power, and purpose that's made in God's image. And Ethan's opinion and his close quarters friendship began to lift, to push back, to kick against the shame that Ellen felt. And what Ethan's friendship did to Ellen's shame is a dim picture of the freedom of God's faithful friendship, the solution to our shame. And the fourth and final point, This morning, I know we're feeling really full. That's a lot covered a lot of territory, but I've saved the best for last. (laughs) So, verses twelve through fifteen describe the friendship of the Lord, and verses twenty-one through twenty-two describe how we experience the friendship of the world, of the Lord. The friendship of the Lord is is taken in by eagerly listening, and sometimes tensely waiting for it. Here's the deal. Our shame from kind of the fearful pressures of the good things we'll do, our shame from the guilty weight of the bad things we did, our shame from the mean things that were done or said to us, all this shame cannot be moved by what we do, right? Even what we did do, or what we will do, cannot move the shame. I love the way that the writer Frederick Buechner kind of puts it, this is a loose quote. It's about as hard to absolve yourself of your own shame as it is to sit in your own lap. It's about as hard to absolve yourself of your own shame as it is to sit in your own lap. Think about that for a while. That is, it's impossible, is what he's trying to say. It's impossible to melt the shame from what you did, past tense, and what you're going to do, future tense, by what you do, present tense. We need someone else's actions. We need Jesus to show up. We need to know that Jesus was put to shame. That his enemies exalted over him. So that none, so that we know this, that none who wait for God will be ashamed. Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame for people like us. The God who chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God promises an upside-down, holy, rejoicing in foolishness and weakness. The promises well-being and inheritance to those because he made such a spectacle of shame on Christ's cross. All so that we can feel free. Free to love and to be loved. The weak in our weakness, in our strength, in our foolishness, and in our wisdom, in our slightly above and below averageness alike. But God also deals mightily with our shame that comes from the stain of what other people think of us. And that kind of shame cannot be completely removed by who we hang out with. But it does start there. It starts with the people we hang out with who sit with us and listen to us and speak to us like Jesus. That is a start. But what good friends and a good church only begin to do is what the friendship of the Lord does unflinchingly, unswervingly, always, anytime, in any place. Because he has sworn a covenant oath unto death to come and to stay alongside to confide in those who feel like the shame is too much. God counts those flooded in our helpless feelings. He counts us as close friends, as confidants to Him and His eternal counsel. But what does it mean to possess this kind of value and worth? A value that comes from the outside, outside the sum of our actions. Right? outside of some of other people's opinions of us. My friend Ricky Jones puts it beautifully, I'd like to end with a story that he tells. When his four-year-old son, uh, Ricky has a four-year-old son at the time, and, his, and his, took his son to buy new shoes. I'm sure some of you have done this before, especially pre-pandemic. Maybe you just order them on Zappos now. But when he took his son to, his, to, to the store, the shoe store, his son insisted on taking Rattle Bear. Okay, Rattle Bear was a stuffed bear that had a kind of baby rattle kind of sewn inside of him. So when he shook, he rattled. And so uh, his son takes, Ricky's son takes Rattle Bear to the shoe store and leaves him at the shoe store because he's four years old. And Rattle Bear gets thrown away with the trash at night. (laughs) And so the next morning, Uh, so when he wakes up, just like he would always wake up, um, his son panics. He reaches over, and Rattle is not there, and so what happens? <laughs> Rattle Bear is not there, and so Ricky has to go to the store, and he retraces all the stores he went to the day before, and finally ends up at the shoe store, and he asks the, he asks the employee, and the employee remembers Rattle Bear. Gray, dingy thing, rattles when you pick it up? Yep. I'm sorry, we threw it away. <laughs> and so, Ricky finds himself in that situation that happens in every mall in America. There's a dumpster outside and usually it's shared with a Subway sandwich shop. And so Ricky is inside the dumpster, knee deep, chest deep in trash. And he is lifting up and moving trash bags and pouring out trash bags. And he is, it's 110 degrees and he's clawing through spoiled Subway sandwich items, lettuce and tomatoes and nastiness until he finally finds Rattle Bear. Triumphant, victorious, and he jumps out of the dumpster with Rattle Bear, but the question is, why go to the trouble for the dingy old Rattle Bear? Rattle Bear was gross. He was worn out, and now he had tons and tons of germs and Subway sauces on him. But it was valuable enough to wade into the dumpster and for a father to climb through the trash because his son loved it. Do you realize we're rattle bear? You're valuable to God because how much you have been loved by God the son. You're important so much so that the Lord of the universe put his son to shame for you. Jesus died like a criminal at an outdoor garbage heap to take the shame from you. And that's a value that can't be lost no matter what you do, no matter what other people think of you. You can smell like Subway sandwiches. You can have hat hair on your first real date. You can be busily average. You can feel sorry for not feeling sorry. You can feel stuck in a nickname you hate. But I want you to know today that God can love you. He sees you as you really are, naked and ashamed. And as you trust in that love of God, he rears back and he shouts loud, he shouts it out, you are worth it. Worth every particle of physics. Every raindrop, every spatter of blood on those two by 10 planks of a cross, worth every shame, singed tear I ever cried, thus says the Lord. And by God, by Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God shouts in a really loud and uncomfortably sincere voice. He shouts, you are worth it and I do it all over again. Would you pray with me once more? Father, thank you for these words and thank you for the way that you deal with our shame. Grow us, grow us in our faith and even as we feel some things that are hard to feel, would we feel your love? Will we know your love? Thank you for dying on a cross and rising from a grave for us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.